But I did miss being with you guys. And uh, I was able to listen to uh, Varnum's message on uh, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. I thought he did a great job. I thought it was excellent. Um, if you didn't get a chance to listen to that yet, I would encourage you to listen to it online. I really like that parable a lot um, because it's one of those moments where Jesus teaches so clearly about grace. You know, there's some parables that have kind of a judgment theme to them, and there's some parables that have more of a grace theme to them. That parable definitely has very much a grace theme. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at a parable that doesn't really fit neatly into the grace-themed category or the judgment-themed category. It's really one that has some of both. Uh, And it's called the parable of the unmerciful servant, or at least that's usually what it's called. And I think it is such an interesting parable. I think all the parables are pretty interesting, but this one, I love this one because it's got a real narrative to it that we're going to walk through. Um, But before we do that, let's say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for another Sunday morning where we can open your word together. And God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us, um, that these would not just be words on a page, Lord, but they would be words that you are speaking to us, God, um, that you are uh, using to transform and renew our minds and in turn to transform uh, our behavior. Uh, Lord, we want to embody the kingdom of heaven here and now. And we pray that as we read this parable and we learn more about what the kingdom of heaven is like, that you would help us to do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, before we read the parable itself this morning, uh, I want us to look at something that happens right before Jesus tells the parable. And this will help to, to set the stage. Remember, when we're reading scripture, if we want to interpret it well, it's important to read what comes before and what comes after to get the best sense of what, what's being communicated to us. And so if you want to follow along, we're going to be reading from Matthew 18, uh, starting in verse 21. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now you might be wondering right now, okay, why does Peter suggest seven times? Why not six times? Why not eight times? Uh, Well, in Jesus' day, religious leaders had discussed this question of how many times do you forgive your brother when he sins against you? And there was a consensus on this. The answer was three times. Three times. Three strikes, you're out. So you can imagine that when when, uh, Peter comes to Jesus and he suggests, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? He actually is trying to sound generous. Um, I I like to think that Peter's brown-nosing a little bit. You guys know that, that term, right? That's when you suck up to an authority figure by telling them what you think they want to hear. He's probably been around Jesus for a while now, and he knows that Jesus seems a little bit more graceful than a lot of the religious leaders. So he thinks, oh, I'll suggest seven times. You know, seven, that's kind of the number of perfection. We like that number. So I'll raise it four times above the normal amount. Seven times. Maybe Jesus will even tell me, actually, you're getting a little carried away, Peter. It should really be more like five times. But he says, yeah, seven times? Should I go for seven times? But, but uh, Peter's attempt to uh, play teacher's pet doesn't actually go as well as he would intend, right? Uh, <laughs> Jesus answers in verse 22, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. So there you go. If you've ever wondered, how many times should I forgive someone? 
There is your answer. 77 times. As a first-time pastor, I have been helping to lead couples through premarital counseling for the first time in my life. Very new territory for me. Uh, and what I like to tell couples is that since you have 77 times when you can sin against each other, you should try to keep your offenses to at least two times a year, or I'm sorry, a maximum of two times a year, um, because if you want to make it to that golden 50th, 50th anniversary, then you have to understand that if you go that long and you sin against each other twice a year, you're already at 100 times, which is 23 times over Jesus' limit. And I like to also give people a little journal that has 77 pages in it, and because 77 is an awkward number to keep track of. You know, so you can write on each page, this was the offense, right? Because Jesus, he doesn't give you permission to stop forgiving at 73 times, right? But you don't want to get carried away and go to 78, 79 times. So a journal can help to, you know, regulate that. <clears throat> well, I hope you know that I'm kidding. Uh, I don't actually do that. I may not know a lot about premarital counseling yet, but I know that would be terrible advice. Uh, because that's not what Jesus is actually saying here. What Jesus meant is that we shouldn't worry about keeping track of how many times we've forgiven somebody. Uh, we should just forgive. It's silly to think of somebody saying, hey, I'm forgiving you, but that's strike 52. You know, you still have, you only have 25 left. Keep that in mind. Jesus is saying that we shouldn't think that way. And then Jesus tells us the parable to illustrate his point. So starting in verse 23... Here's what he says. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So we have three main acts in this story. And in the first act, we have a man who owes a king 10,000 talents. So that raises the question, how much is 10,000 talents? And I actually had a lot of fun figuring this out. So a talent was the highest denomination of currency in the Greco-Roman world. There was no, no way of expressing money greater than a talent. And 10,000 was also the highest named numeral 
in the Greco-Roman world. So you can't really express a greater amount of money at this time than 10,000 talents. And it's estimated that if you went all throughout the kingdom of Egypt and, and collected all of the coinage that was in circulation at the time, it wouldn't even equal 10,000 talents. It would be less than 10,000 talents. Now, a lot of us today have issues with debt, uh, especially people in my generation who took out loans for college. Uh, it's not unheard of to have six-figure debt. But this is a whole other level of debt. Uh, this is, uh, according to one estimate I found, the amount of money that the average Palestinian worker would have made if they worked for, wait for it, 164,383 years. So if we assume an average lifespan of 80 years, which is generous for this time, uh, and then assume that 60 of those years are going to be working years, then this number would be the amount of money that the average Palestinian worker would make if they worked for 2,739 lifetimes. So <laughs> this is not analogous to bad credit card debt or bad school loan debt or anything like what we typically experience. This is an absolutely unrepayable amount of debt. This is a hole that you could never climb out of. And at first, Jesus describes the king as doing what any self-respecting king would have done in the ancient world, uh, which is to order that this terrible servant be sold into slavery along with his wife and kids. And uh, now that wouldn't actually do anything to pay off the debt because it wouldn't even make a dent. But it would be a way of saying, you cannot rob the king like this. You can't take the king's money like this and expect to get away with it. It would have been a way of making an example. But the servant gets on his knees and he begs the king and he says, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. And the king responds in this very unexpected way. Uh, Jesus says that the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now, there's two things that I want us to notice here, two very important things. The first is that little phrase, took pity on him. Uh, some translations put it as moved with compassion. And the Greek verb that's used here in the original language is something that's really hard to pronounce, but I think it's fun to say. It's splachnitsomai. And it means literally, no, don't laugh, to be moved in one's bowels. <laughs> so your splanchnon is literally your bowels or your intestines. And in those days, people spoke of the bowels as being the seat of the emotions. So like we talk about the heart being the seat. And you know what? I think that's kind of fitting because I don't know about you guys, but when I get nervous, when I'm emotionally stressed, uh, I get butterflies in my stomach, or sometimes I feel sick to my stomach, right? Uh, a lot of us experience that. So when you talked about experiencing intense emotions, you talked about your splachnon. <clears throat> and um, so what Jesus is saying here is that the king was deeply, deeply moved, right? He was, when he looked upon this servant who owed him all this debt and was begging... He, he didn't just do some sort of cold calculation in his head and think, okay, I'm going to let this guy go. He didn't do a cost-benefit analysis. He looked at this poor, pitiful servant, and he felt deep 
compassion in his body, right? The, 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 king, the king felt moved in his heart, moved in his splanchnon. And because of that feeling of compassion and pity, he was willing to drop 2,739 lifetimes worth of money, and he canceled the debt. And that brings me to the second thing that I want us to notice here, which is that he canceled the debt, right? Remember, when the servant begs, he doesn't ask for his debt to be canceled. He offers to repay the debt, but the king doesn't accept his offer. He doesn't say, okay, I'll give you another year to pay off all that money. I'll put you on some long-term repayment plan. Right? He doesn't say anything like that. He just cancels the debt entirely. So this is a king whose splachnon is pretty moved. Right? Because you don't, you don't just uh, cancel 2,739 lifetimes worth of debt without incredible cost to yourself. If this king is owed 2,739 lifetimes worth of earnings, then canceling that debt means that he loses 2,739 lifetimes worth of earnings. But the king is moved deeply enough that he's willing to let all of that fortune go and absorb the cost of that debt in himself. He's the one who ends up having to pay for it. And I want us to realize, how amazing is this? Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like a kingdom where the king is owed a debt that is unrepayable. It's impossible to pay. But because of one thing and one thing alone, because of his profound compassion, because he is deeply moved in his heart, in his spachnon, he cancels that debt. So if this morning, if you are feeling like you have sinned against God, too much for him to ever accept you, if you feel like your debt to God is beyond repayment, well, there is a sense in which you are you're correct, you're right. It's true. But what you also need to know is that God's compassion, his heart is deeply moved for you. And he is willing to cancel that debt. And this is something that we know to be true, not just because of this parable itself, but because of what Jesus actually did. When Jesus died on the cross, he was absorbing the debt of our sin in himself. Remember, the king in this story, when he cancels our debt, he puts the burden of the debt upon himself. Right? He ends up paying for, for that debt. Because that was money that was rightfully owed to him. And so by canceling it, he shifts the burden of that debt upon himself. And that's exactly what Jesus did when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus, who is the true king of the kingdom of heaven, absorbed in himself that debt caused by our sin. And why did he do that? Because of his compassion. Because he wants us to go free. Because he doesn't want us to carry the burden of that debt. Even if it's 2,739 lifetimes worth of debt. Now, it would be really nice if the parable ended right here. <laughs> Um, but like I said, this isn't just a parable about grace. This is also a parable about judgment. And in the second act, the story has a twist. The freed servant goes out, and the first thing that he does with his freedom is he finds another servant who owes him money, and he grabs him, he chokes him, and he demands that he pay him back. Now, we're told that this fellow servant owed him 100 denarii. 
So how much is that? Well, in those days, one denarius would be standard pay for one day's work. Maybe you remember that from when Barnum spoke last week. He talked about how everyone that was invited to the master's vineyard uh, was told that they would be giving one denarius for the day. So 100 denarii would be about 100 days pay. So the fellow servant owed him, you know, I guess 100 days minus the, week, the uh, Sabbath days, it would come out to about a third of a year's pay which is a substantial amount of money. If somebody owed me a third of my yearly income, I would think that was, that was a pretty big deal, right? But it is a drop in the ocean compared to 164,383 years worth of pay. And what, what Jesus wants us to realize is that the servant isn't willing to extend even a tiny fraction of the same grace that was extended to him. He's not paying it forward at all. And again, what I want us to notice is this key difference between the master and that servant. Um, both of them receive the exact same request. Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. And the difference, the one major difference, is that one of them is deeply moved in his spachnan, and the other is not. One of them has pity and compassion for the one making the request, but the other one can only think of himself. And in the third and the final act of the parable, we find out how the king feels about that servant's lack of compassion. He says, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I have on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. So when the king finds out that the servant has no compassion, you know, when he finds out that this servant has an unmovable splachnan, he's angry. Right? He's really angry. He puts him in prison, and not just in any prison, but in this prison where people are tortured. And he's supposed to stay in this miserable place until he can pay back everything that he owes. Which, honestly, I don't think he's ever going to be able to do because when you're in prison, it's pretty hard to make money. You know, never mind 2,739 lifetimes worth of money. So this is, a, this is a really severe punishment that Jesus is talking about. And as much as I would like to say, well, this is just exaggeration to prove a point, Jesus does make it pretty hard to say that with what he says immediately after in verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. What he says there actually reminds me a lot of what we read in James a few, well, a few months ago now. Maybe you remember, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a hard teaching, but it's something that Scripture is consistent on. So our willingness to forgive is a really big deal to God. A really big deal. And I think if we are to distill what this parable is saying to two major things, Jesus is saying two things about the kind of people who are in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a place of people who are forgiven. They're forgiven of an unpayable debt. But it's also a kingdom of forgivers. 
kingdom of heaven is a place of forgiven forgivers. And I'm sure all of us are really comforted by that forgiven part. But we're probably a little bit uneasy with the forgiver part. So let's talk about forgiving. I think that forgiveness is a very difficult topic. Uh, because the command to forgive can feel like a command to ignore justice. Just to abandon justice. And those of us who care deeply about what's good and what's right and fair, we care about justice. Right? As we should. So if someone does something horrible and we're just told to forgive them, we feel, we feel like we're being told to abandon justice. And that feels like a violation of goodness. It feels wrong. Not only that, but the command, to, uh, the command to forgive evil can feel like a way of enabling people to continue doing evil. Uh, for example, if a woman is uh, being abused by her husband and she comes to a pastor and she says, you know, my husband is, is mistreating me, abusing me, and the pastor says, well, God commands that you forgive him. And that's all the pastor says? That doesn't help to stop the cycle of abuse. That actually helps to perpetuate it, right? So we need to be very careful when we talk about this command to forgive because God does care about justice and God doesn't want us to enable evil. So the question becomes, well, how do we balance these things? How do we juggle these balls of the command to forgive, the, the command to care about justice, and the command to prevent evil in the world? Like, how do we, how do, we do that? Well, I'm not going to pretend that there's a real easy solution to this. Um, but I think there's a couple things that we can uh, do uh, that, that help to juggle all three of those things. And one of those things is that we need to understand what forgiveness is. And I have a couple points I want to make about forgiveness. We'll go, we'll go through this quick, just defining what it is and what it isn't. So the first thing is that forgiveness, or forgiving... Uh, doesn't mean denying that we've been the victim of injustice. Uh, the master in the parable doesn't say, oh, 2,739 lifetimes worth of money. You know what? It's not a big deal. It doesn't matter. So I'll cancel the debt. It's not that it's not a lot of money. The point of the parable is it is a lot of money. It is a big deal. The master really has been wronged. Yes, he cancels the debt, but not because it's an insignificant offense against him. Secondly, forgiveness, um, it doesn't necessarily mean having a close relationship with the person that you've forgiven. And I say this, I say this not just because of uh, a worldly definition of forgiveness, but because I think it's actually right there in the text, in the scripture. And I say that actually because of a passage that comes right before what we've looked at today. Um, same chapter, chapter 18, starting in verse 15, Jesus is talking about the same subject. What do you do when your brother sins against you? And here's what he says. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. 
Now, we don't have a t enough time this morning to look at this passage really closely and figure out, okay, what does this exactly mean for us in the church today and how we operate? Um, but what I want us to notice is that what Jesus seems to be saying is that if someone sins against you, at some point, if they refuse to change, if they're not repentant, then your relationship with them also needs to change. Uh, and the way he describes that change is he says, you should treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, there's some debate over what exactly Jesus means there. But at the very least, I think we can be confident that it means there's something about the nature of your relationship that should change. At some point, if a person is sinning against you in the same manner, uh, consistently, unrepentantly, it makes sense to stop regarding that person as a brother or sister and to see them differently. Um, now, that doesn't mean you don't love that person. Uh, Jesus loved tax collectors and pagans, right? He spent time with tax collectors and pagans. Um, and he commanded us to love our enemies. But it, I think what Jesus is saying is that at some point, if there is unrepentance long enough, the nature of the relationship is supposed to change a little bit. Now, shortly after Jesus tells us, that, tells us this, that's when Peter says, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times. So the question we need to ask is, how is what Jesus is saying here in harmony with what he just said? Right? And the only way it makes sense to me is if it's possible to forgive someone, but also to treat them like a tax collector or a pagan. And the only way that makes sense to me is if forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean having a real close relationship with somebody. Now, having a really close relationship with somebody that wronged you, that's called reconciliation. And reconciliation is a beautiful thing. And reconciliation can't happen unless forgiveness has already happened. Um, but reconciliation is a two-way street. Forgiveness doesn't have to be a two-way street. Forgiveness can just be you deciding, I'm going to forgive. And sometimes it's best to have forgiveness um, when reconciliation is not happening. And to define forgiveness just a little bit more specifically, forgiveness is the willingness to let go of feelings of hatred for a person who has wronged you. And... It is the choice to not make someone pay for what they've done. So you can do those things while still maintaining that injustice has been done to you. You don't have to deny that injustice was done to you. And you can do those things while still maintaining an appropriate distance from the person who has wronged you. So what Jesus is commanding us to do is to let go of our desire for vengeance and to allow our feelings of hatred to be transformed into compassion. That's forgiveness. And I want us to notice something very challenging from verse 35. He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. In other words, Jesus doesn't just want us to forgive through, through clenched teeth. He doesn't want us to just be like, I forgive you. He wants us, like the master in the story, to look upon this person who has done wrong to us 
or to think about the person who has done wrong to us, and for our splachnan to be moved, for our heart to be moved, not with feelings of hatred, but with compassion and pity. Now, if you're like me, at this point, you're thinking, how in the world can Jesus command this? <laughs> how can he command me to have compassion and pity for people that do wrong for me? You know, on a good day, I can be obedient to God by not making people pay for the wrong that they've done to me. But asking me to forgive them from the heart, to feel compassion and pity for people like that, that's asking for a lot. So how do we do that? Again, I don't have a magic bullet here, but I think that this parable gives us two things uh, that can help us to forgive from the heart. Two points that we can derive from the parable. The first one, tips for forgiving from the heart. The first thing is that we need to realize how big our debt to God is. I think that Jesus really wants to see us like the first servant, wants us to see ourselves as that first servant in the parable. Um, I think that's very clear. Which means that all of us, like that first servant, have an unpayable debt before God. Do you believe that you have an unpayable debt before God? I think that for many of us, if we're honest, deep down we think, well, I've made some mistakes. I know I'm not perfect, but I don't know about an unpayable debt before God. I probably have, you know, the kind of debt that I could work off through a summer job. But no, Jesus is saying, you do have an unpayable debt before God, 2,739 lifetimes worth. And that kind of thinking that assumes that we don't really have that big of a debt before God, that's dangerous. One, because it's not true. And two, it's dangerous because if you think that you're actually pretty, pretty good, you're not going to have much mercy or compassion for people who don't seem as good. See what I mean? You're, you're always going to be thinking internally, why can't they be perfect like me? And it's going to be really hard for you to forgive people from the heart when you're thinking that way about yourself. So we need to internalize this truth that we really do have an unpayable debt before God. And then, secondly, we need to believe that God, through Jesus, really has canceled our debt. There's something so transformative and powerful that happens in our hearts when we believe that Christ really has paid this unpayable debt in full. When we really believe it, it has this softening effect. It makes us more compassionate people. And I can't prove this, but I suspect that one of the reasons that the servant in the parable was so desperate to get money from the second servant is because he didn't actually believe that his debt had been paid. Why would you do that? If you had just had 2,739 lifetimes worth of money, of debt, canceled... Why would you then go out and strangle somebody else to try and get a third of a year's pay? What's going on in your head there? You know, either that first servant didn't actually believe that the master was being genuine, or he was so prideful that he thought, I can't accept this kind of grace. I need to prove for myself that I, I can actually pay off that debt on my own. And that made him a miserable, horrible person. 
right? If he had just received that grace, embraced it, I think it would have been very different. And so the same thing is true for us. If we want to be the kind of people who are truly compassionate and forgiving and forgive from the heart, we need to be people who believe that our debt has been paid in full. It's been taken care of. You don't need to try and get it from anybody else. The kingdom of heaven is a place of forgiven forgivers. So recently I was listening to a podcast, my favorite podcast, Radio Lab. And um, I know the last message I talked about Radio Lab or a couple messages ago. And uh, I'm going to have to be careful not to talk about Radio Lab in almost every message. But it was about a, uh, a town in Nebraska called Seneca. And this town fell apart because no one in the community could forgive each other. Uh, it started with someone who was keeping animals on their property and wasn't taking very good care of them. So, like, the horses were, like, you know, knee-deep knee in waste and it smelled bad or something like that. And so some people in the town got really upset about that. But then some other people in the town got upset that they got upset. And then people started picking sides. And over time, things just got uglier and uglier to the point where people were, like, spray-painting paint the outside of their homes with insults of, you know, towards other people in the community. And it got so bad that somebody brought a motion uh, before the town council, the town board, I think it's time to de-incorporate the town, basically to get rid of it. And so the town literally voted on whether or not to keep having the town. And uh, the vote to de-incorporate the town won by one vote. And so the town is no more. They all live together in the same spot. That's the ridiculous part. You know, they all hate each other and they live in the same area. But, you know, nobody comes to plow the roads anymore and there's no school buses or anything like that. And they, don't, they can't actually say, we're Seneca, Nebraska. They're not a town anymore. And the reason I bring up that story is just because it's so fascinating to me the way unforgiveness killed that town. Nobody was willing to cancel any debts. And, and it destroyed it. And this is relevant because the kingdom of heaven is like, it's in some ways, it's like a town, right? But it's a community that lasts for eternity. And so if you're going to have a community that lasts for eternity, it needs to have forgiving people in it. Even if our sin natures are going to be removed and we're going to be different in heaven, we're still going to have to let go of things that happened in the past in this earthly life. The kingdom of heaven doesn't have the option of deincorporating. So we need to start reflecting the kingdom of heaven here and now. So let's be a community of forgiven forgivers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning I'm just in awe of how this parable illustrates the grace that you have for us. 2,739 lifetimes worth of debt. That's astounding, God, that you would be willing to just cancel that debt. God, I pray that that would touch our hearts this morning. I pray, God, that we would recognize what a good and graceful and loving God you are. And I pray, Lord, that we would recognize how amazing it is that your heart was so moved that you would absorb the cost of that debt yourself. 
that you would die on a cross for our sins, God. Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anyone who doesn't know personally that grace and love, uh, who has never received it, Lord, I pray that their hearts would be open today to receive it, God. I pray that they would, they would pray to just let you into your, to, to their lives, God. Um, and I pray, Lord, that that grace would have a transformative effect on them and on each one of us, God. I pray that we would re- believe fully that our debt has been paid. And I pray, Lord, that we in turn would be forgiving people, compassionate people, uh, people who don't hold on to offenses, Lord, but, but let it go. God, we give you thanks, Lord. Help us to be forgiven forgivers. In Jesus' name, amen.